Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Today I'll be interviewing Lynn Green. Lynn was raised in rural Kentucky. She attended Duke University and Tufts University in Boston, where she graduated cum laude in 1982 with a degree in biology and anthropology. For the last 35 years, she and her husband Scott have worked with church ministries all over the world, particularly in China and Hong Kong, where they lived from 1987 to 1997. Their two children, Stephen and Ariel, were both born there and raised in a bilingual environment. The whole Green family is Cantonese-speaking and loves returning annually to Asia to brush up and renew church relationships. After overseeing the Hong Kong church's growth from a house church to a congregation of over 2,000 people, the Greens began leading in Seattle, Washington, developing the local congregation and consulting with church leaderships in the Northwest and China. Lynn enjoys developing specialized women's ministries, training younger women in full-time ministry, and is a popular international speaker at Christian women's events. Inspired to continue her growth and exploration of cross-cultural challenges, she received a Master's in Communication and Leadership from Gonzaga University in 2013. Her studies focused on successful adjustment for the professional traveler in a new language and culture as well as happy family adjustment. Her passion is to help sojourners enjoy and grow through the challenges that cross-cultural exploration begins brings. Lynn set out on a new adventure the next year when she and Scott relocated to Berlin, Germany to assist in the revitalizing of the congregations in Western Europe. She loves the challenges of new adventures, including learning a new culture, language, and ways to serve the people of Berlin. For more than 15 years, she served on the board of Hope Worldwide, an international charity for the world's poor. Lynn also serves locally with her two active sheep herding border, collie, border collies at Seattle's Overlake Hospital, providing weekly pet therapy for the convalescing. At home, she still enjoys hospitality and baking, combining her love for traditional Southern cooking and exotic Asian cuisine now adding amazing cuisines from all over Egypt. Lynn, thanks so much for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thanks, Rob. Lynn, you've got an amazing, amazing story, and I've, I've been looking forward to talking to you. Thank you for making the time. How, tell, tell me, how did you become a Christian? Well, I became a Christian in 1979 when I was just, I had just finished my freshman year at Duke. I had grown up in the traditional church, and when I went off to college, my mother and grandmother both said to me, now's the time, don't lose your faith, go to church right away. And I promptly waited till about the second or third month to go find the church <laughs> and had to get all that first few months of partying in, didn't do me any good. But um, so I did find the local congregation and I was really lucky that it was a campus ministry that had been planted out of Gainesville. And the first Sunday there, I knew there was something different. Mm. Everybody had their Bibles out. They could find passages in the Bible. I was like, wow. And the sermon that Sunday was on hot, cold, or lukewarm, mm. Revelations 3. I went home that night and called my mother and said, we're in trouble. <laughs> 
And uh, it took me a few months after that to figure out that I needed to repent. But I knew pretty early on that I was not living the life of a disciple and needed to repent and become a Christian. So I was actually baptized in June of 1979. I was one of the early baptisms in Boston. Okay, so wait a second. You mentioned Boston, but you started going to church in Duke, at Duke. In du- okay, so yes. tell me about that transition. What? How did that? Um, that was during the time when Boston was about to begin. And um, a group from Illinois moved out to Boston. It was Kip and uh, Marty and Chris Fuquay. Well, Marty came later, but there was a group of people that moved from Illinois, a group that moved up from North Carolina, including Grant Henley, Don Lee, Doug Arthur, quite a few other people. I came in the middle of that summer and I wasn't part of the original 79, but was right after that. I'd met Scott in North Carolina because I was at Duke and he was at UNC. And then he moved up to Boston a year and a half later. We weren't dating yet, but he came up a year and a half later. Now, did you have your eye on him at that time? No, not at all. Matter of fact, <laughs> both of us decided we were not interested at that time. So we, we grew during the intervening time. Okay. Now, what, why did you choose to go to Boston? I mean, like, tell me, like, you're in Duke. You're part of, a, obviously, a good campus ministry. That's a huge move. I mean, Duke is the, the Harvard of the South. It's a great university. Why would you go up north and just leave all that? Yeah, it kind of blew my parents' mind because I actually dropped out of school for a semester till I transferred into Tufts. Um, I just believe something special was going to happen in Boston. Mm. And my original goal was to learn to go and be a Bible talk leader. And I told my parents that's what I was going to do is I was going to go to Boston for a year and learn how to be a Bible talk leader and then either go back to Duke or go back to um, the University of Kentucky and go on with the rest of the decisions and plans for my life. And I still really believe that learning to be a good Bible talk leader is one of the most important spiritual goals and um, places to be. To be a great Bible talk leader is to lead a small group effectively. And I really believe that that's where church growth happens, is in leading a small group effectively. From what later happened, that that was a relatively modest goal to simply be a Bible talk leader. (laughs) To to, to move, just just to become a Bible talk leader, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I really believe that's still our need in the kingdom, is for a lot of us to learn how to be really great Bible talk leaders. Yeah, I believe we've in the intervening time, maybe in the last decade or so, we've come to rely more on um, the church Hmm. as opposed to that small group interaction that really helps people get introduced to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Well, it makes me think about right now with COVID, how important small groups are. Just it's bringing the spotlight back to small groups meeting in homes. And it's, it's making me think even in, in our, our own church, that's something we're going to have to really concentrate on is bring back the spotlight on Bible talk leaders, small group leaders. So 
Can you tell me a little bit about what, what was it like? I mean, you were there in, in 79 in Boston. Is that right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the summer of 79? I was actually baptized after the first Bible talk at BU. Oh, my God. It was a Tuesday night, and we had the first Bible talk in Boston on campus at Warren Towers. And then that later that night, I was baptized. Can you, can you describe the atmosphere? What was the feel? What was the vibe of... I mean, Boston hadn't become 3,000 members at that point. It's, it's maybe less than 100. What, what yeah. was it like? It, what was just, how did it feel to be there? There were a lot of people that had a lot of dreams, a lot of faith, a lot of uh, desire to do something great. And Boston was considered the mission field of America. You know, right. Boston was this atheist Northeast place with uh, a strong religious heritage of Catholicism. And um, so it was sort of considered an intense mission field. And there were lots of changes for a lot of us. Um, I actually, I'll tell you a a funny story. We used to go around campus door knocking and we would tell people that we were having a Bible talk, or at that time we called them a soul talk in the dorms. And that was maybe what had been effective in Gainesville. So a lot of the practices that we did were what best practices of what we knew at the time. So I was knocking on somebody's door in a dorm at Tufts and somebody opened the Bible and there were about six people in there. And I said, Hey y'all, I'd like to invite you to Bible talk. (laughs) And somebody looked at me and they said, what do you babble about? (laughs) I said, we babble about the Bible. Because truly, I know that was the moment at which I decided I would work on losing my Southern accent. Right. But it just didn't go over well in Boston. That, you know, that was my next question is how did you deal with the, the cultural shift? I mean, coming from Kentucky to, to Boston, I mean, it can't be two more different places in the world. Yeah. Um, I actually tell people that was my earliest and biggest cultural shift for me to go from rural Kentucky to urban Northeast was a big shift. And I had all of the traditional challenges you have when you move places. I got sick because the germs were different. I hated the weather because it was different. The food was different. The language was different. Mm -hmm. I was mocked. Uh, you know, it just all of those things were there when I moved from Kentucky to Boston. Mm. And yet the desire to change people one on one is greater and to bring the message of Christ is greater than the personal sacrifice you have to make. That's amazing. I, you know, I don't even think think about that, that you had to change your accent. I've only known you with your present accent and it's funny that you had to consciously make a decision to drop that southern accent pretty and it's hard to do actually in language learning dropping or changing your original prosody is one of the hardest things to do and i know i haven't done it completely i still if people listen they can hear that i'm from the south but having lived in boston and then hong kong i've rounded out my vowels a bit more 
But my children used to laugh because they would walk through the house and they would hear me talking on the phone and they would go, oh, you're talking to Nana. We can hear it when you talk to Nana. So you can revert right back to it at any time. It's not conscious. I see. If I go to the South, it just comes out. Isn't that amazing? Okay. Yeah. Well, tell me, how did you and Scott get together? Well, we were both in the campus ministry in Boston. Um, He was a student at BU. I was a student at Tufts at the time. And we had gone on one date and he thought I was stuck up and I thought he was goofy. (laughs) And I think we were both kind of right that early on, I was probably stuck up and he was just kind of goofy. And then um, the spring of my senior year, he was encouraged to take me out again. And so we went on a date and we just had a lot to talk about. There were a lot of spiritual goals that we had in common. He was sort of from the South. I think I liked that, that there was a connection that I could talk with him about um, international, not international, but more national places at the time. He had grown up military, so he'd lived in a lot of different places. He was really interesting to talk to. He was a philosophy major and I was a science major. So I used to always say we approach things from opposite points of view and we always found a common ground in the middle. Mm -hmm. But inevitably, we started with two totally different perspectives. I mean, I think about Scott and my memories of Scott and he was always so cerebral. I mean, the guy is just so smart, just like kind of reminded me of a scientist slash John F. Kennedy, you know, relative. I'm just uh, an amazing person. And um, it's interesting to, to think about you guys getting together. So what, what year did you guys get married? We were married in December of 1983. Okay, so you got married in 83. Um, you know, going back to your time at Tufts, uh, one thing, you know, we spent some time living in Japan and Erica... Kim shared about um, how you reached out to her and Erica and her husband, Frank, went and planted the church in Tokyo, Japan. Uh, Can you tell me about how you helped Erica become a Christian? Because I think that's a it's a great story. You know, it goes back to this point. At that time, I was a Bible talk leader and I had had to learn how to be a good Bible talk leader, how to have a good discussion, how to engage everyone and listen to people. I used to laugh. I cried before and after many early Bible talks I led. I cried before because I wasn't sure if what I was going to share was good or effective. And I cried afterwards because I felt like it wasn't effective enough. Mm. And I didn't ask good open-ended questions. I would sort of try to lead to a point (laughs) and you would get this deer in the headlight look from people and I would, I finally worked with this group of which Erica was a part of at that time. And I said, if I ask a stupid question, please say, wow, could you rephrase that question? Help me here, give me something to work with. Help me know where I'm going. Um, And Erica was a part of that early Bible talk at Tufts. And I used to say we were politically correct before we knew to be politically correct. Mm -hmm because we just reached out and let God lead us to people. But that early Bible talk, 
everyone is still faithful. Wow. Deirdre McCauley was from Monrovia, Liberia, and she became a Christian the year before Erica. Erica was from New Jersey, but her heart was, you know, she was first generation immigrant from Japan and went to Japan a lot. So she was very Japanese. Uh, Carol Glenny was Upper Crest, Connecticut. And um, Roberta was a musician, an Italian musician from New York. And then there was me, this person from the South. (laughs) And we just built family. We really had a good time together. We went to Carol's house every fall for a hayride because her family in Connecticut had a farm. So we would all trek down to Connecticut, do this hayride. The Harvard guys would come with us. And at that time, there were just guys at Harvard. And Tufts was mostly girls. And so we would just kind of do this fun road trip together. Um, But that's what I remember is we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of Bible studies. Mm -hmm. And we grew a lot by doing those two things. And in particular, studying with Erica, when I asked her what her religious beliefs were, I've never forgotten this. She said, well, I'm a Buddhist Christian. I went, hmm, can you tell me what that is? Because I don't think I've ever met a Buddhist Christian before. <laughs> and I think that was Erica going, well, I have these Buddhist beliefs from Japan. And I know I live in America and America's quote, a Christian nation. So I'll just kind of combine it. And so we began studying the Bible together just to see how God defined it all. And uh, I learned a lot studying with Erica because I needed to grow a lot and learn a lot. Now let's let's go a little bit forward. How tell me about the process of going to Hong Kong? You and Scott planted the church in Hong Kong in 1987. How did you get from college and marriage to the Hong Kong mission team? Well, Scott has always been a dreamer and he was going to do the most idealistic, dreaming, forward thinking thing he could think of to do. Mm -hmm. So at that time, all of us, not all of us, but many of us in Boston were wanting to plant churches. And at one point we were slated to go to Washington, D.C. with Russ Yule. Scott and Russ were best friends. And then we had talked about going to Buenos Aires because somebody needed to go there. We actually were on a trip to Buenos Aires to check it out. And Scott said, let's go see this movie, The Killing Fields. So we went to see the movie, The Killing Fields while we were in Buenos Aires. And then he said, we need to go to Asia. Mm. I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) We're here in Argentina and you want to go to Asia? that was in June or July of 86, I think. And he said, yeah. And so by August, maybe it was 85. I don't know. I forget. But by August, we were on a trip to choose between going to either Tokyo or Hong Kong. Scott had committed that we would go to Asia. So what happened in the interim to get my heart on board is we had this conference and I will never forget, I was sitting in the second row, about three seats in, and Kip was preaching about faith. And Scott was working with me and going, you know, come on, what do we think? Let's either go to Tokyo, let's go to Hong Kong. And um, 
Kip was talking about faith and I realized it was my faith. I had a faith problem. And then I'm crying. I'm going, no, I have to go. If it's a faith issue, I have to go. <laughs> so we decided we would go to Asia. And two weeks later, we were on this trip. And what we prayed about was for the two of us to be unified. It was very important that it not just be his dream or my dream, that things be our dream. And so we started praying. And we both love Tokyo. Tokyo is an exciting city. It's amazing. And when we got to Hong Kong, we both felt this energy and this, I don't know how to describe it, but there was, a, I really believe God put Hong Kong on our hearts. And um, we tell the joke that we went on a, a dinner tour where you cruise around Hong Kong Island. and. Um, as we came around one corner, there was a big sign in green that said Green Island. <laughs> and Scott was like, look, Green Island. This is where we're supposed to be. And later we find out it's a construction company. It's a cement company with this big sign. But Scott was like, okay, we're going to Green Island, to Hong Kong. So we went. Not because of that. but Right, right. That's great. You know, it makes me think about, I mean, all that travel, where did the money, excuse me, where did the money come from? Like all to send all those, I mean, Boston had really been revived in 79. This was 85. Where was the money coming for all that just rapid international expansion? Incredible sacrifice from the Boston members that still goes on today. People just, all of us, sacrificed because what we cared about was spreading the gospel around the world this vision and you know i will say this kip could create and inspire vision like few people i've ever been around oh I know he was it. a master visionary yep. and and people want to do something great and so people were contributing financially people were contributing with their lives everybody was giving something. And I think that spirit really permeated the church. It still does. The Boston church is an incredibly, incredibly sacrificial giving church. Lynn, I got a, I got a question from one of my listeners who's going on a mission team. And he said, Hey Rob, how do you, how do you develop a heart for the lost? Not the, the technique of saving the lost, but just, just the love for people, you know, just wanting to save souls. Mm. And I mean, if you're going to go to China and try to, you know, change countries, change languages, what, what was going on there? There had to have been a lot of love for the lost. What did you do or what, what have you found that helps to increase your love for people who are lost? Hmm. I think, first of all, just to remember that somebody loved me when I was unlovable. It's not like I was the easiest person in the world to reach out to, to study with. Um, so somebody loved me. Mm -hmm. And also a deep belief. And this is where your faith will be tested. You better believe that Jesus is the answer. Because if you don't, you know, the devil gets in there and works on your faith, works on your beliefs, works, undermines right. everything we believe. 
And so early on, when I was in these academic settings, my faith was tested. You know, in Boston, people thought you were an idiot if you believed in the Bible. Right. And I think early on, my faith was tested. And people need to have their faith tested. First Peter, be sure to have an answer to answer everyone for, for the reason for the faith that you have. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I think we need to do our work on ourselves to know what we believe, why we believe it, and to have a deep faith, a faith in God's word. Um, I had not studied a lot with people that didn't believe in Jesus, right? I grew up in the South. There was more people that had a basic belief in Jesus and maybe just didn't know their Bibles. And early on in Boston, Scott studied and developed a study in the book of John um, with a guy. And we would talk a lot about his study with this guy creating faith in Jesus. Mm -hmm. So when we went to Hong Kong, that was a natural transition. And I began to see that rather than about doctrine, it's about your faith in Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so we did a lot of studies with people in the book of John. And if you go through the book of John, by the end, people are ready to become a Christian. Mm -hmm. If they believe in Jesus, if they decide that Jesus really is the Messiah. Right. And so back to this question about love for the lost, I'll never forget Scott did a sermon on um, talking about not I need to, but I am needed. Hmm. And the difference between I need to go do something, I should, Mm -hmm. versus I am needed. Hmm. And he tells the story about a guy that was a, uh, what do you call Para, parachute, not parachute, but when you jump out of an airplane. Right. Uh, like a pararescue person or? Well, he was teaching people. Like a, sky, how to, uh, like a skydiver? Skydiver, exactly. Skydiver. So this guy took someone and as the person jumped out, they knocked their head and did not, could not pull their wire. Mm-hmm. And this skydiving instructor jumped out of the plane and did the dive bomb aiming for the person and grabbed the person, pulled his cord, pulled the person's cord, and they both lived. And afterwards, someone said, how did you find the courage to do that? And he just said, I was needed. And it's that sort of heart rather than I should, but I am needed. And therefore, I want to. And I think that's there's a huge difference in that motivation. If I need to versus I am needed, it really makes a difference. Yeah, that's powerful. Thank you. The church in, in Hong Kong started with a, a mission team. How many, how many members initially went on that team? There were 12 of us that went from America, and there were five Christians that were already there who were worshiping with a local congregation who had been converted in three of them in Gainesville and two of them in London. So with those, and they were the five native speakers. So with those five Christians that were all college age, PH was, PH and Venus were out and working by then. So they were probably 28. So there were 17 of us in total. Wow. 
now, 17. The church grew from 17 to 2,000 in 10 years. And I don't know, how, how many churches are there now from, from that original planting throughout China in our family of churches? Do you have any idea? I'm going to guess, and it's just kind of a guess because the numbers in China change. I'm going to guess 15 to 20. 15 to 20 church yep. churches. That, there are that probably were... 12 in China, three in Taiwan, one in Macau, and Hong Kong. Okay. So what's that? That's a lot. How many how many disciples do you think would, would your best guess be through counting Hong Kong and all the churches in China? 3,500 to 4,000. That's great. How, do, how does it feel to know that your life made that difference, that you were there at the very beginning, you, you know, that you had such a significant role in getting the gospel to take off in China? I think what I think about is not the numbers, but the people. Mm-hmm. Like when people ask me about Hong Kong, I immediately begin thinking of friends and circumstances and people in each of these places and how they are doing things just like we like we did in the beginning and how inspiring their their lives are to me as I watch what they're doing now. Mm-hmm. And I think that those principles of um, John 13, greater love has no one than this um, and love one another. That's how all men will know you're my disciples. You know, those early scriptures just still ring true. That's how people will know we are Jesus's disciples is by our great love. You know, as a church builder, I'm very interested in knowing like how, how did your church grow so quickly? 10 years to 2000 people. And that is just blow away. I mean, in, in 10 years, you've got a mega church. What, what were you doing? Can you, give, can you give me five things that were going on that helped to build it quickly? First thing I think of is prayer. Scott and I had been praying for over a year for leaders for China. So before we even set foot in Hong Kong, we prayed every day, God, give us the leaders of the future. That first Bible talk in, um, in Chinese university 13 of the 15 converts that year went into the ministry. I believe God answered our prayers and led us to the leaders of the future. Wow. Um, Second thing I think of is fun, to be honest. I know that doesn't seem deeply spiritual, but we had a lot of fun together. We really liked being together. As a mission team, we liked being together. Things that we did with our people we were reaching out to, it was fun. That's what I remember was our early parties, our early dinners, the traditions, and and what happened at those dinners. There was a, a guy that was converted, and he was just an amazing brother. Um, but Scott had been studying with him for six months. And he was frustrated that this guy wasn't changing. And he had said to me on a Thursday morning, he said, you know what? I'm just going to tell him tonight at Bible Talk that it's just not worth us studying anymore. Mm -hmm. said, I just don't think he's really changing. Maybe he doesn't want this. I'll just, you know, he can be my friend, but we don't have to study. Right. And um, I was like, all right, well, you know, you've been praying about it. And that night 
before our Bible talk dinner. So we met every Thursday for Bible talk and we had dinner at this particular canteen in uh, the dormitory. And this brother's roommate came and sat down with Scott for dinner and said, you know what? I don't know what you're doing with this guy, but he's really changing. Wow. And I just think the fact that this roommate knew where to find Scott, I believe that was the answer to prayer. Matter of fact, it was. Scott mm. kept studying with him and later he became a Christian. But again, just that prayer, the fellowship, the fun. Um, we used to talk in the early days about faith, fun, and family, and fruit. Mm. And I believe those are still principles that go together. Right. And in that order, faith, fun, family, and fruit. Or maybe you can switch family and fun. I don't know. Kind right. Of depends that, on that's what great. Easy is, to remember. Yeah, exactly. But the fruit is the outcome of the good process. Right. That's great. Now, so prayer, having fun, anything else that you were doing? I think our Bible studies really met people's needs. We obviously we're teaching a lot of young Christians how to study the Bible with people, but we also were teaching you don't have a formula, but you are meeting people's needs. The rich, um, the Ethiopian eunuch, it says that Philip began with that very passage of scripture and explained to him. So there wasn't a formula for how to study with him. It was meeting the Ethiopian eunuch's need. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important thing is that I meet a lot of young people today who act like whatever you call the study series is all there is. It's a right. formula. Right. And I'm like, come on, we got to go a little deeper than that. You got to explore the Bible with people, give them scriptures that inspire them, answer their questions not right. just have a little formula we go through. Right. I, you know, Lynn, I totally agree with you. And I, I think that the study series, I love the study series. And I think that's, I don't know whoever invented that. Maybe you invented that study series, the, the classic one with the word discipleship and, you know, sin studies, great study series. But it's, it's kind of like when I read biographies of musicians, once you develop the skill on the scales and all of the repetition necessary then you're able to to start to embellish and and to really go into the mastery category of yeah uh, doing solos and I agree I mean I feel like it's you've got to know the basics but that's not that's not the end of it you've got to move on beyond those basics the first principles and really be able to read a person and figure out what does this person need here and yeah, so very very true. very smart. You raised up so many leaders. I mean, what were you doing to train people? Um, I think Scott and I both, we would talk a lot together about leaders and how to work with them. And we did a lot of the Socratic method of teaching, mm -hmm. <laughs> not so much giving information, but teaching people how to think. Um, I would say that's one of the big things that we did and let them influence us. Our early staff meetings, 
sometimes I felt like they were so laborious because we would want to have a theme. Scott was a big theme guy <laughs> or big principles or so we would want to have a theme for something. And I'm like, just make a make a decision. Who cares? <laughs> but we would have these really long discussions that now I realize we're teaching all of us how to think. And we're teaching us how to dialogue, how to respect one another. And we were not top down because we were in a new culture, a new environment, and the Chinese language is really different and has lots of nuances. And so we would say, here's our end goal. This is what we would like to see. Mm -hmm. What's the best way for us as a group to get there? Mm -hmm. And that process was hugely valuable to all of us. I think it developed Scott and I more as leaders to not be so top down, but it also taught all of us how to think. And sometimes that process is a little longer on the front end, but then on the back end, when you make a decision and you're all unified behind it, it can move forward more effectively. Mm -hmm. it, it makes me think of, uh, I know this is totally unrelated field, but there's, you know, football coaches and uh, Pete Carroll was the coach of the the New England Patriots and he got fired from his job and someone pulled him aside and said, Hey, you know, you've got talent, but you need a philosophy. You need a philosophy of coaching that guides you. And I think about the great coaches who've had like John Wooden at UCLA. And what I hear you saying is that you and Scott had a philosophy that you developed that was not, that was custom to the field that you're in that, that really worked in training people to think for themselves and to bring the best out of people. So that's that's very, very powerful. Thank you, Lynn. Like, Lynn, let me just share my thoughts about you. I, I we've, uh, first of all, I wanna say this. Uh, my wife said, make sure you tell Lynn that she's so grateful for you because my wife was converted in Boston in 84 at University of Massachusetts, and she was in your young zealots group. And she said, you know, it was really challenging, but she grew so much. And uh, it was, she said that there were a lot of tears there. And uh, she, she really appreciates that. And also she wanted to say, and this is from both of us, when we planted a church in Ashland, Oregon, back in 2005, you guys were leading Seattle and were heading up that family of churches and were so um, open-minded, so receptive to something that was not exactly orthodox it was a self-supporting mission planting and you made us feel a part of of what was going on in there in the northwest and we just want to both of us say thank you so much for uh, providing cover for us and allowing that church to to get off the ground uh, as an experiment so thank you well i'm glad that we could be part of that and watch that experiment be so successful thank so you. Thank i'm you. glad you guys could go well, there was a lot of uh, love and, and uh, you know, room for experimentation. And I appreciate that about you and Scott. So I can see how your philosophy carried over into your time in Seattle. You, you strike me as an extremely confident person. Okay, you always have. I've never known you to be unsure of yourself or even show the slightest hint of, of lack of certainty. And... Um, it always struck me as like, okay, both you and Scott were like 
both powerhouses and drivers, especially you. I mean, certainly you for sure. Uh, Scott one time told me that he was more more introverted in, by his nature, um, but that that doesn't. St- Can you tell me where'd that come from? Uh, you know, who who influenced you? Have there been people that have influenced you? That where did that confidence come from in the drive? Um, I would actually say primarily from my father, and I don't know that I'm confident. I might just be loud. I am an external processor. I do think out loud. Um, I like ideas. I have a lot of ideas. And my Scott used to say when I would have ideas, he would go, that's an idea. That's not a decision. (laughs) And I would say, hey, I got one in a million. So I'll have an idea that's one in a million. The problem is you have to listen to 900,999 <laughs> ideas to get to the one in a million right. that's really good. Uh, so in that sense, I take my ideas a little bit with a grain of salt because usually a first idea is not the best. It needs to be reworked and worked on. So, right. um, But my father, I was a child of the 70s. So women's lib was really big. And um, I was competitive, I was bright, and my father used to say, you can be anything you wanna be. Hmm. And gave me a work ethic. Hmm. So I feel like probably I was influenced initially because I was competitive with the boys. Hmm. So there was this sense that women couldn't, and you know, often I was told that in the seventies, well, girls can't do that. or girls shouldn't do that or and I think that that put a drive in me and actually my early relationship with Scott was very competitive we've always been competitive with each other in really good-natured sense we were competitive academically um just in every way but we we had a good time with it what what would you say to to young women who like want to do ministry go and they're listening and they're going, Whoa, that's, I totally connect with Lynn. What advice would you give them for, you know, feeling like, Hey, I'm a strong, strong woman, you know, and I want to make a difference. What advice would you give them knowing uh, what you know now, what would you tell a person who's maybe in their twenties, uh, single or married and feels like, man, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a strong person. Yeah, I think God respects that and wants that. I think that's the first thing I would say is that God wants you to be you and he will work with you. And then we learn in marriage that we need to work as a team. So what I want to do as a married woman is always influenced by what my husband wants to do. And what he wants to do is influenced by what I want to do. And so that teamwork can have a big effect if you're married. If you're single, you have a little bit more flexibility to just do you and figure out what that means. And to me, it's important for people to figure out what they want and be responsible for what they want. Mm -hmm. I think early on in the ministry, early on in the kingdom, we used to have a lot of shoulds. 
women should be like this. Men should be like that. You should do this. Rather than God has a lot more flexibility, I think, with what we want to do. Obviously, when it's within the realm of his, you know, prescribed things in the Bible, right? Right. Well, okay. I think about my own wife, Pam, and in in some ways, similar situation. Pam was a total powerhouse. When I first met her, she had come off the mission team to Egypt. She was like a, you know, what I consider a spiritual celebrity. She was from Boston. She knew exactly what she wanted to do. She wanted to go back on the mission field overseas. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't think this woman can respect me. I mean, she's so strong and she, she was very powerful. And it really kind of jeopardized our relationship early on because I was like, I don't think I'm strong enough to to tackle this woman. I mean, she is just going to bowl me over. I don't know if she can respect me. Um, what advice would you give to young women who maybe are looking for a great guy, but are super, super powerful, spiritually ambitious, and can intimidate, can, can blow away, you know, really, really good guys that may develop later. Like I had to, it took me a while to develop, kind of catch up, but what advice would you give? I was a women's ministry leader before Scott was an evangelist. Before we got married, I was a women's ministry leader and he was an intern. Um, what? So in the ministry, I had maybe had more experience than he had, but it didn't slow him down with challenging me personally, with helping me spiritually. I may have had more of sort of an outward form but he helped me be deep or he went deep with me. Mm -hmm. And I really respected that and really needed that. So my only advice for women would be don't shoot yourself in the foot. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's some guy and you're interested in, and he's a young Christian, spirituality is, is not what you've done. It's who you are. There's a soundbite right there. That's awesome. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You guys always seemed happy together. I mean, I always sense like this is a true partnership. You're both equally yoked, both love the mission. What what made your marriage work? What what was your secret? Mm, I think both of us loved God. We had similar ambitions. And I would say the biggest thing is that we talked to each other all the time. And our lives were about others. Both of our lives were about others. And so we had agreed that that was part of us as a couple was giving, giving away to others. And um, I think that that internal communication was a huge part. We fought a lot, but we always made up. We had fair rules for fighting. Uh, We both were strong. We brought things to the marriage. I think we had to learn, both of us, give and take. But I think we really liked each other. He was my best friend. He was my friend in everything. He liked me. He wanted me to be me. There was a time when I felt there were a lot of um, prescriptions about how I should be. And when Scott did his, did his program in marriage and family therapy, I think it really helped our marriage go deeper rather than trying to 
make me into something he thought I should be. He really helped me develop me. And that made both of us happier. How did he do that? We were, how did he do that? Um, there is a book called Please Understand Me by David Kiersey. And it's based on the Myers-Briggs typology. Early on in our marriage, I used to say I wanted to be Scott's best disciple. I wanted to be just like him. I, I really admired everything about him. But in a marriage, you, you can't subjugate yourself like that. It's, it creates an imbalance in the marriage. And I think there had been that for a while. We were both more traditional in some of our views on marriage because of our age. And that worked for us. One of the things that happened when we read, please understand me is I think Scott really accepted that I was different than he was. If you read the marriage between an idealist and a guardian, it describes us. It talks about how the idealist takes on this Pygmalion project and the guardian is often um, averse to that. Mm -hmm. And that was true to a degree in our relationship when Scott would try to make me be a certain way. I just didn't appreciate that. Right. And I think he began to accept that I would never be as deep as he was. He's really deep. Right. <laughs> and sometimes I would be like, I just, I'm trying. I just can't go that deep. I think he finally accepted that, yeah. that my strengths were in other areas and we could complement each other. Yeah. And so I, I would say by the time we had been married 25 years, we really were happy with each other. And I know that you go, wow, that took a while, <laughs> but, but we had a great time along the way. But oh. I think that the beautiful thing about it is marriage, you can keep growing. It shouldn't ever get stale. Right. You keep growing as people and we really enjoyed each other. That's great. Now you guys came back in 97 to Seattle. I'm, I'm assuming that when you went to Hong Kong, you thought you're going to be there the rest of your life. Must have been a kind of a shock to come back. It was the hardest move I've made to date, leaving Hong Kong, moving to Seattle. Mm -hmm. I literally cried for days and I was getting sick. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know what, Lynn, you just need to get out of bed and decide that God will work with this. And he has, he did. But it was very, very hard to leave the family that we created there. Right. And that was because of the, the takeover of Hong Kong from mainland China. Well, there were two things. We had a church arrested in 1996 in China. And obviously this church had direct ties to Hong Kong. And uh, the couple that had been there was expelled from China. And so we felt like as Americans leading the church in Hong Kong, that we would put the church at risk. Right. And so there is a scene in the movie Dances with Wolves when because of John Dunbar and his new wife, they had to leave the Native American population because they put them at risk. Mm. And that end scene, I still just can't watch it without crying mm. because... There's uh, 
his radical friend goes up on the cliff top and says, dance us with wolves. I am wind in his hair. I will be your friend forever. And it just captured our feeling of leaving Hong Kong because it was what was best for the Hong Kong church. And I think that's been true. And the leaders that have led there have done a fantastic job. We weren't needed. And so it was time to move on. That's great. Well, passing over your time in Seattle, you guys decided, I mean, this, this is what blows me away. Okay. You did that when you were young, you went to Hong Kong when you're young, but then you're middle-aged. I mean, you're settled in, you got family, you got your kids there in, in Seattle. And then all of a sudden I hear you're going to Berlin. I'm like, what, what, I mean, at a time when most people are heading to the suburbs, they're just like camping out. You guys are going back on the mission field. Can you tell me about the decision process to go to Berlin, Germany? It was um, a long process. It wasn't short. We were asked to coach them into, well, we went in 2009 to teach at the European Bible School. And that was one of our early connections with the leaders in Berlin. And after that, they asked us to coach them. And Scott was like, what would that mean? And they're like, it would mean three trips a year. So we started coaching Berlin because they didn't have full-time leaders and they didn't want an American mindset. And so they asked us, they were having some struggles with a church that they had been long-term connected to. And they didn't want an American mindset, but they wanted influence. Mm -hmm. And so they asked us to start coaching them. And so we went in 2010, 11, and part of 12 as coaches. And we would stay for a week or two weeks at a time. And it was a great partnership. The Seattle church allowed us to go and the Berlin church paid Seattle for our time. Mm -hmm. And so it was a real sign of maturity that Berlin didn't just say, you know, hey, come help us. They wanted to pay Seattle for allowing our time to be used there. And it created a partnership. So we did that. And they then asked us to move there. Well, in 2012, Scott wasn't done with this program yet. We had some family issues that made that not possible. And so another couple went. And then later, that couple was there for six months, decided to leave. They were gone within a year. So we were coaching again the end of 2013, and they asked us to come again. And I had just recovered from cancer. I had just finished my master's, and I still had these blinders on. And that's one of the things I say to people that cancer does is it just sort of all you can see is what's right in front of you. And it had obviously for all of us that go through cancer, it's a very challenging time. And I just wasn't ready to leave my comfort zone yet. And Scott, initially I was like, okay, I'll go for three months a year and we'll be in Seattle for nine months a year. Somehow that negotiation flip-flopped to where we were (laughs) there nine months and here three, I'm like, how does he do it? I still don't know how he did it. (laughs) And so we moved to Berlin in January of 2014. Wow. 
And how long were you there for? We were there uh, for four years. Four years. 14, 15, 16, 17. Yeah, we moved back the end of 17. Okay. I mean, what was that like, you know, in comparison to your previous mission fields? You got Boston, you've got Hong Kong, then Seattle. What was it like? I mean, Berlin, Germany is the heart of, you know, theology, Martin Luther. I mean, it's got a tremendous tradition, but at the same time, totally now post-Christian. Can you explain, like, what was it like going to that mission field from your previous previous areas? I love the fact that you get to keep growing. I feel like it was a real growth opportunity for me to learn how to share my faith and to work with people in a post-Christian environment, as you said. Scott's philosophy background made him like walk the walk, talk the talk. He was Mr. Intellectual there. And I'm over there going, okay, time (laughs) for Lynn to catch up. But I loved it. And I uh, I love the Christians there. You know, a lot of times I've heard Americans say, well, the churches in Europe, they just need more faith. I'm like, you have no idea the faith that European Christians have because it's not easy. It's a tough, tough mission field. And you have to learn how to be an effective ambassador for Christ there. You know, I used to, I came back, it hit me that in America, if you say the word Christian, I think for many, now that's changing even in America now, but if you say the word Christian or Christianity in America, I think it often evokes good words, words like faith and freedom and forgiveness and good things. If you say the word Christianity in Europe, it means power, corruption, coercion, ignorance. I mean, just a visceral reaction is really different. Wow. And so you have to learn how to work with that. And again, Bible talks are super effective. Wow. It's that small group of talking about things. All of us are the same and that we want our lives to matter. So if you talk about things in life that matter and show God's perspective on it, people are really drawn to that. So we had a lot of great Bible talks in Germany. And allowing people to have these discussions and there's not a one answer for the que- the open-ended question that you're asking. It's, inter- so, it's interesting to it. me what, you know, you've talked about the power of Bible talks in Boston, the power of Bible talks in Hong Kong, and then in Berlin. It's like a uh, one-size-fits-all tool that seems to work in all cultures. W- what do you think that is? I think it's the big word I would use is dialogue, is that it allows people to talk together and it's not a monologue. Preaching is monologue. Preaching is super effective in certain circumstances. But I think especially in a post-Christian world that this issue of making God and the Bible relevant is done in a dialogical manner where you can sit around and you can talk and you really listen to one another and you leave people with one provocative thought. I think it works. I, I totally agree with you. I, I feel like that has really faded in, in our family of churches. Um, 
what do you think it's going to take to get that revived? What do you feel like would, would like if you're the king of the world or queen of the world, you know, what would you do to restore Bible talks in, in our churches? I agree that it's, a, to me, it's a value. It's a huge value that every, that leaders have to believe in and therefore inculcate the value. Mm-hmm. And I think some people believe it's a tool and I believe it's a value. Mm-hmm. And those are two different things. Mm-hmm. And I don't know any leader that would say, oh, it's a bad thing but I don't know that they know how or wish to lose control. In some ways with Bible talks, you're losing control a little bit. You're right. letting go of the reins. Right. There are going to be some people that do some things, try some things that you go, what? Right. Um, but I think that personally for me, it's better to not try to keep control and yeah. to let there be innovation. Right. I, I think I'm, I'm double and triple underlining this whole concept. So that's great. I'm so glad you brought that up about the Bible talk. Um, let me just, let me just shift gears. You lost Scott to brain cancer uh, just a few years ago. Has it been two years? Two years in March. It was two years. two years. Can you, I mean, just, I, I tread softly here. Can you tell me about that? What, what happened? What'd you go through? Um, well, the irony is we were setting ourselves up to stay in Germany longer. So when we first moved to Germany, it was a three-year commitment. And after having been there two years, we decided that we would stay until retirement age. So basically for another five to seven years. So that necessitated selling our house in America. At that point, I had sheep. There's a long story about why I was keeping the sheep in America. We were coming back to America for three months of the year to connect with our kids. Um, My parents are older. I felt the need to be with them some. And it was just that part of me that I had developed post-cancer with farming that I wanted to retain. And so we were selling our house, which we did in March of 2016. We bought the farm, which is a property to set ourselves up for retirement, had someone in the rental house so that we could be gone. So we'd sort of set ourselves up for long-term stay in Germany. Mm -hmm. And that was in March of 2016. And in August, Scott started having some funny symptoms that he told me about. And by September, the symptoms, at one point he said he had it again. I said, wait, wait. So now it was happening once or twice a week. Now it's happening daily. And we were about to get on a road trip to go to Munich for a meeting. And, you know, they drive on the Autobahn 200 kilometers an hour. I'm like, I am not getting in a car with you, with you having these symptoms that maybe stroke, maybe something else. You got to go to the doctor before I get in a car. So he went to the doctor that night and um, they did a 
CT scan and they found a six centimeter mass in his brain. And they didn't know what it was. And the MRI couldn't get scheduled. There's a lot of reasons why, but um, so after two days of waiting in the hospital for an MRI, a friend of ours said, go to UW. If, if he has a six centimeter mass, which he did, she said, he'll have to have craniotomy. He'll have to have brain surgery. And it, we were leaving anyway, this was in October. We were going to be in America for six weeks in November and December. So she said, just go back. So we went to UW and, um, they had him in surgery three days later and the diagnosis was a grade two um, astrocytoma. But even then they were questioning if it was grade two and maybe grade three or grade four. And mm. now I think they believe it was grade four because the average life expectancy from diagnosis to death is 14 months and he got 18 months. Mm. So that necessitated we were here through January, we were in America, and then he really wanted to go back to Berlin. And so we went back to Berlin for as much of 2017 as we could until it just became too difficult physically for him and for me. There was a lot of um, work then on me to deal with two medical systems, two insurance systems, two sets of doctors. and. So in 2017, we decided that it was best to move back. And by then we had our tiny house in America, this tiny house I live in was ready and we moved in here and we got back on October the 7th and on November 2nd. So three weeks later learned that his tumor was growing. And at that point he was terminal. Mm. So it was quite a journey. Like, how, can you tell me, like, how did you guys cope with that? I mean, you guys are in your prime of your life. Um, you're doing so much for God. How, how did you guys cope with that spiritually, um, deal with that in your relationship with God? Like, why is this happening to us? You guys have many, many, you know, should have had many more years together. What, what was going on? privately? I think for both of us, we helped each other's faith a lot. And it does test your faith. Do you believe God is good and he's sovereign? Right. One of the few times I saw Scott cry was in church. And it was, I'm going to say in November, right after we had moved back and right after he knew he was terminal. And it was the song. It's, he's a good, good God. That's who he is, who right. he is. Right. And I'm loved by him. That's right. who I am, who I am. Right. And I looked over and Scott was crying, but that's what he believed mm. is that God is good and we are loved mm. and that's enough. And, um, part of it with a brain tumor is, um, he did have cognitive decline and it was hard to know at what point it was tiredness, at what point it was the brain tumor. 
in a good way or at what point he forgot. Um, he never talked about dying. And um, he had a good brother come have a talk with him in December. And so I know they talked about that. And I'm really grateful that it was Doug Arthur. And Doug came and had a talk with him. And um, other than that, Scott didn't talk about it. One night I could hear him praying and I got up in bed with him. He was in a hospital bed. And at that point he'd already started getting up and wandering and falling to bed. I'd found him um, upstairs one time and he couldn't get up the stairs. I still have no idea how he got up there. And Oh my gosh. Anyway, so you kind of have to laugh about the things that are a little funny tragedy. And, uh, but I heard him praying and I got up in bed with him and I said, you're dying how are we going to deal with this? Right. And he said, I know that. I said, do you want to talk about it? He said, there's nothing to talk about. He said, God is good. Mm. And so, um, so we didn't talk a lot about that. And the way that I make sense of it, you know, they say that you're supposed to say to people, it's okay, and I'll be okay. Right. And I had said that to him several times. And then when it got to be the end, I got up in bed with him again. And I said, who am I kidding? I will never be okay. Mm. I said, but it's time for you to go. Mm. God is calling you, and I will have to deal with it. Mm. And he died 36 hours later. Oh my gosh. But I honestly believe he needed me to tell him the truth. And the truth is I'm not okay with God. I'm okay. And I think it's deepened my relationship with God. I believe that God gives us spouses to teach us about him. He actually allows us to have our spouse take the place of God a little bit. And I know we shouldn't, but I believe all of us do. And God wants to teach us about him, that he's our partner. He's our friend. He's our safe place. He's our lover. He's our parenting friend. You know that God plays all of these roles and he knew we needed Many of us need a spouse to help us understand that. Right. And so now I focus on that. Um, God used Scott to teach me about God. Mm. And so it deepens my relationship with God. Do I miss Scott every day in every way? Mm. I don't know when or if or how that changes but i accept that that's where i'm at today mm -hmm. but i'm just grateful that scott and i had 34 years together and they were amazing if oh my gosh what a journey we had oh boy and to, to wish for more would be selfish <laughs> do i wish for more yes but it just we what we had was amazing that's that's incredible what you know, as 
as we age and many listeners are, you know, different, different age spectrums, what advice would you give to someone who's, whose partner is sick or terminal or who's lost a partner? Any, any help that you could give them? Um, I can only speak to my experience. Um, and a couple of things. One is, um, it's a sacred journey. I really feel like going on that journey with Scott was very special and very sacred. God was with us each step of the way. And it doesn't mean it was ever easy. There were many hard moments, hard alone, hard physical moments. Caring for someone in late stages is very trying physically and emotionally and spiritually, but it was a sacred journey and I wouldn't change anything of it. Um, You do need friends. I had two friends that started coming every Tuesday night and we live our ways. I mean, where Scott and I ended up out here at a shepherd's retreat is an hour north of North Seattle. But these friends came every Tuesday so that I could go to dinner with my son on Tuesday night so that I could have a little break. And then they kept coming every Tuesday and to this day for two years. They are, I mean, I really call them my discipleship partners. So the importance of having friends like that is just crucial. Yeah. You, uh, I mean, you had a personal experience with breast cancer and then your husband, any, did it, did that help at all having gone through your own personal battle with cancer and then dealing with, with Scott? Um, it did. My poor son, my daughter's adopted, so she doesn't have the same genes. My son, though, was like, great. What kind of genes did I get? I'm like, sorry, what what can I do? What can I say? Um, I think the help was that I knew how up and down it is. The journey that it's the emotions of it, how hard chemo is physically. So it, it just gave me the ability to give him a lot of space and a lot of grace. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for your time. It's been such an incredible story about your life, all that's gone on, but you, you've still got many years ahead. What do you see for yourself as you go forward into the future? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, you may not want to use what I'm about to say. I'm going to let you <laughs> you decide what is what's good, what's not. I think one of the thing I things I've realized, and I was part and party to creating leading by couples. And so then, when you're no longer part of a couple, and you can't lead the same way, I have nobody to blame but myself, if you will. Right. I don't know that we have room in the family of churches right now for much women's leadership that's not part of a couple. Right. And so fortunately, I do, my role now is to be what's called a missions consultant. And I work with Hong Kong, Seattle, and uh, 
Europe in doing what I can to strengthen the women's ministry. So I do that remotely, which all of us have done this year, but I do it remotely starting uh, last year. And then I also visit and travel, which you can't do this year, to Hong Kong and to Europe and do a lot of teaching. Um, I think we have a ways to go in respecting and utilizing women who no longer have a spouse that is their cover or their mm -hmm. shield, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I don't know exactly what the future is for women like that in the ministry. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we have the bandwidth in our movement for that. Mm -hmm. Right. So, well, so I think what's in store for me is probably early retirement and uh, continued development of a shepherd's retreat. Okay. So I'm a builder by nature. Right. That's what I do. No one's going to stop you. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit. You, you are a, a dog trainer and you've got border collies and that just came out of the blue for me. You have a real passion for training dogs. How did you do that and the ministry and work overseas? And for people that maybe have had passion since they're a kid, but they go, how's this going to fit into my current lifestyle? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I really believe that God, anything we give up, God gives us back 10, 50, 100 times as much. I believe that God respects and honors our sacrifice and you can't outgive God. So when we moved back to America from Hong Kong, Scott said, I'll buy you a horse. I said, you can't. He's going to give yeah. me a pony. Okay, yeah. great. <laughs> well, I had given up horses when I moved to Boston. Right. And so I said, you can't afford the kind of horses I ride, but you can buy me a border collie. Okay, there you so go. So we started with a border collie as a family pet, and that led to sheep herding. And then that led to buying or buying sheep after cancer when I needed to be around nature. I felt like being in nature was really healing. And so I would go to the farm um, that I rented once or twice a week starting in 2007. Mm. And um, I built a group of women to help lead it because I couldn't do it all by myself because I lived an hour away and I could only go up to the farm once a week. So I created a group to take care of it. So I kind of did what I do in the ministry to help take care of what I wanted to do for fun. And so um, I had also in Hong Kong started teaching for riding for the disabled. And when I moved back to America, I didn't have access to horses. So I started using the dogs as therapy dogs. Wow. And what I love about serving others that way is you get amazing contacts. Mm -hmm. So the people that I met through serving with horses in Hong Kong and with dogs in America, I met some really amazing people. And so I believe that in serving just to serve, we get to meet people. Yeah. And so, and Scott was fine with me doing that. He was like, do you do whatever works for you. Now he had no interest in the farm. Right. None. So when we <laughs> bought the farm out here after we sold our house, he said, don't expect me to do any work out there. Right. 
Right. I said, okay. I said, I'll wave at you as I drive by on the tractor while he's <laughs> sitting in typing the paper. <laughs> okay. You had a very loving and understanding husband. Yes, <laughs> that's that great. is true. And so now you're out there now. How many acres is it? I have 36 acres. 36, and you have sheep on it? I do. And so you run your, you have two dogs, you run your dogs out there and you practice on the sheep and keep them. It's like the movie Babe, right? It's like the movie Babe. That's right. (laughs) And it's not just that I practice on the sheep. It's that I can't move sheep without a dog. The sheep are not, they're not uh, docile. They're not wild, but they're not, uh, what's the word? Domestic. Well, they are domesticated in a sense, but it's not like they come to me. If I walk up to them, they walk away. So if I need to move them, I need the dogs to move the sheep. I, I, I just, okay, can you give me in a nutshell, how do you train a dog to, to make a, a flock of sheep go from here to there? I mean, they, can you just give me a quick, it just blows my mind. How, 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 how can a dog know, okay, I want him to go over here to the, to the pen or whatever like that? Well, it starts with their instinct. So you have to have something that has talent and instinct and border collies have been bred for that for hundreds of years. So that's why most of us use border collies. Um, And they have to want to partner with you. So it's all this partnership, Mm. this partnership of my relationship with the dog, the dog's relationship with sheep, um, how we're all working together as a team. It, there's a lot of spiritual concepts in this whole shepherding thing. Right. And for example, I have two very different dogs right now. Um, and I have to work with each of them differently. They each need something different from me in the partnership for them to be effective. And so you start with them as puppies in a round pen. And the dog's first instinct is to bring sheep to you. Mm-hmm. They sort of want to herd things to you. Right. So they have to learn to bring them, to bring them on balance and to stop when asked to stop. Or they blow through them and they bite sheep and sheep run in 20 different directions. And then you have to kind of herd them again. So it doesn't start pretty is the truth, but you work with them and then they learn directional commands. And so they basically learn go left, stop, go right, stop. And so it's a bit like the directional issues. It's a bit like playing pool where there's a ball and there's a cue ball and the dog's the cue ball. And you're wanting them to hit that ball at the right spot to make it go a certain direction. All right. That's a good analogy. That's a good analogy. Now, Border Collies are some of the the smartest dogs I understand. Very. Yeah. Yep. They're very smart and they're very intuitive. You couldn't see it, but a minute ago, come here, Vi. When I was crying, both my dogs had their heads in my lap. Oh. They are just, come here, Vi. Here, come here. Here, come up. I'll see if there. This is Violet. Here, Vi. Well, Chief, come here, Chief. This one, my other one, he's really good. He would never get up on my lap because that's naughty. She's my naughty one and she will. There. Oh, what She's a like, cutie. hi. So that's Violet. You can't see her face, but. I, I can see her on the screen. There you go. Yeah. Oh. But yeah, so dogs are amazingly intuitive. And I am so glad I have dogs because I'm out here 
And I have not only the border collies, but I have guardian dogs that guard the sheep. But I have one of the dogs that I'm his personal project. And at night, he's in the field behind. But at night, he lays up by the gate by my house. Wow. Like he knows where I am and he's kind of guarding me. So I'm kind of glad he's out here. There you go. I, that's fantastic. Now, just to wrap up, then there's, you know, we could just go on for hours, but what advice would you give to a person who wants to make their life count, who's listening, goes, man, that, that's an amazing story. I want my life to be that kind of an adventure. What, what, what would you tell them? You know, my son asked me, um, as Scott was dying, he said, mom, how did you guys do it? How did dad have this impact? Because we had friends from all over the world come spend days with Scott. People came from China, from Hong Kong, from Berlin, Munich, France. And um, they spent time just to be with Scott. And Stephen noted that. And he's like, how did dad do it? And I said, you know, it's really doing it one person at a time. It's not setting out to have an impact. It's setting out to make a difference one person at a time. And therefore I can do that wherever I am, Mm -hmm. whether I'm in America or in Budapest or Berlin or Hong Kong, I can have an impact one person at a time. That's right. Inside out. Scott used to talk about it being inside out. That's right. Any, any final words, any final thoughts, anything you missed from anything we've talked about before? I don't think so. We've talked a lot. I'll be exhausted after this. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Lynn. And I want to thank you for listening today to the Rob Skinner podcast. It's been fantastic to have Lynn Green on the program. And I want to thank you for listening. My goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. If you enjoyed the program, I'd like to ask you to share it with your friends and family and subscribe to the podcast. Have a great day and make this life count.